Welcome to the Mission Gathering Thornton Message Cast. This week, we begin a new sermon series, Action Required, with a look at the family systems theory concept of triangles and how Jesus responds to emotional reactivity in the Gospels. Karina and I's 15th wedding anniversary, if you'd believe it, um, Friday, July 30, 2004, we, well, she ruined it, this is us, this is us, uh, the night of our... At our wedding, you know, we just looked like two little young kids, and we were, we were we were married in the church we grew up in, and we were practically kids ourselves. She was 20, I was 21, almost 22, and we've known each other since middle school, practically, and been friends a number of years. And uh, now, I'm going to say this, Karina might remember this differently, so I'm going to preface this all with, this is my memory, so if she, if you want to hear the other story, ask her about it later. Um, yeah, I get the truth from her. Um, but my memory is, um, I'm, I was two grades ahead of Karina. So after my sophomore year, no, after my freshman year of college, I came back from college, and I, we, you know, we were going to church together. I saw her in church, and I looked at her, and I thought, wow, she's attractive. You know, came back from college. And I was like, hmm, maybe I should make, uh, if I can say this, make a move on that. Am I allowed to say that in church, Tom? <laughs> Maybe I should choose my words better. Maybe if I should take some action on that, since our sermon series is action required. Um, so I decide, oh, I should see what's going on there. Uh, but any hopes I had of taking some action were dashed when I found out she was in a relationship with one of her classmates. Um, now, luckily for me, by the end of summer, he went off to college because he was a year ahead of her. And they broke this thing off. Um, so I, you know, I saw an open window, you might say. So throughout my sophomore year of college and her senior year of high school, we stayed in contact. And uh, I came back spring break. She had her junior, senior. And I went with her to that as friends because we were good Baptists. So we went as friends. Um, but then I came back for the summer. And I remember we were in a... Uh, McDonald's. She was just nannying for a couple little boys, and I think it was a McDonald's on 64th and Wadsworth, if you know where that McDonald's is. And I think that's where we kind of made it official, if you will. And uh, so we, uh, we kind of were a thing, I guess you, you would say, throughout, our, uh, throughout the summer. I even went away to work at a church uh, youth camp, but I did, to stay in contact with her, I did something none of our, our kids would ever understand today. I wrote her actually letters, uh, you know, old school snail mail letters, and sent them in the mail to her before these days of text messages and even, I didn't really have access to email much back then. Um, so then, you know, summer was over and we went to college, and it's a long story, you can let her explain this to you, but she actually ended up attending the same college I went to. So we were back at a Baptist Bible College, and, you know, things, things were... Um, you know, things didn't go as smooth as co- at college as they had before. And I was, a, I was a junior now at college, and she was a freshman. I had this roommate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw him under the bus here. His name was Blake. And uh, Blake, if you're watching, yes, I'm throwing you under the bus on purpose. Uh, <laughs> but he had this knack for overcomplicating things. And whenever Karina and I's relationship was on rocky ground, he would always suggest we break up. And uh, Karina, uh, probably this day, is not a huge fan of Blake still. And, and yes, uh, Blake, Blake was my best man, actually, in this marriage. So 
we shouldn't throw Blake under the bus completely, and I was overly influenced by Blake. Um, but, you know, Karina's always like, why are you listening to Blake so much? It's like, well, you know, he's my roommate. Like, I see him all the time, and he's pretty persistent. So, um, you know, I, I, I should have done better. And I think he was single, and I think he was trying to, like, live, I don't know, work out his own stuff there. Uh, but I won't get into that. So I remember uh, after our first kind of kerfuffle, if you will, and he, Blake suggesting, hey, you know, you should probably just, you should probably just break it off. So we were walking around the edge of campus one afternoon, uh, and I just kind of broke the news to her gently, like, hey, we should take a break and remain friends. So we did that. And um, I don't remember how it happened again the second time, and she'll have to tell you this, but somehow we ended up getting like back together again, and then I broke it off again after listening to Blake. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I deserve those judgmental stares. Yes, I do. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously it worked out. We're still together today, so it worked out. Um, but it was still, mind you, it was still the first semester of college. This all took place. It's still this first semester of college uh, that she had, she had this male, this, this guy friend who was, trying to, who was trying to make a move on her. And the good Baptist world, you know, you have to, like, you have to, like, make sure, I don't know, I don't know what his deal was. He wasn't ready, whatever, but it was, it worked out for me. But he had his kind of, he had his mindset how he was going to get his foot in the door, was he was going to drive her home uh, for college, for Christmas break from college. And, yeah, I don't know if it sounds like a big deal to you all, but in, in, in Baptist Bible College world, like, that was, that was a big, that was a big first step. Like, that was a way to get yourself in the door. So I don't remember exactly how it went, but I found out about this and was like, no, this ain't cool. So I, like, I confessed, um, confessed for a third time my feelings to Karina, and she, she blew him off. Uh, but I didn't, get in the, I didn't get in the door the third time that easily. If I remember correctly, uh, her roommate uh, was then Jessica Dobler, and she said, you know, Lauren, you've got you've to earn this back. Um, so in front of, she lived in, she, what, what was it? Uh, Vic, Vic dormitory, out on the front grass, on the grass, her roommate made me get down on my knees and like beg for her, you know, for her affection. So I, I did that and we drove home together for Christmas and the rest is history. So as, as, as funny as it is to laugh at now, um, our, racial, our relationship, at least in the beginning, was pretty dysfunctional and I think you know, I'll take, the, I'll take the hit. Probably most of it was my fault. And it was, you know, in my anxiety about having to figure out how to handle this new relationship, uh, I was doing, well, I was, you know, I was bringing in this outside person, my roommate, Blake, to help me handle this, all this anxiety, this tension that I wasn't familiar how to deal with. So in the world of psychology, we call this uh, an emotional triangle, where you have one person, the second person, and the triangle exists because at the top of that, the triangle, you bring in a third person. We bring in a third person to help us manage that anxiety. So basically, uh, an emotional triangle is created whenever the emotional anxiety between two people gets focused on a third person or an issue. So we do this because it's a great way to avoid change. So instead of focusing on our own stuff, we focus uh, on a person or an issue 
to shift the focus away from ourselves. Sometimes we're the ones creating the emotional triangles. Sometimes the emotional triangles are forced, forced upon us. So, you know, obviously, like I said, we do it in relationships. Uh, I was tense about my relationship to Karina, so I went out and sought Blake's opinion and created a triangle. I'm sure during our time, there was times where Blake was tense about a relationship, so he created a triangle and butted himself into our relationship. We also do it at work, right? Uh, if we're having a disagreement with our boss, we might go to our coworker and say, man, can you, can you believe what our boss is doing? So we'll kind of recruit allies. Or sometimes we'll do it to our boss, as if we, we go to our boss and be like, hey, Rolando, do you hear what people are saying? And that's like the most innocuous thing we can say people are saying, but it really, it's quite, uh, what's the word? Uh, in, ingenious? That's not the word I'm trying to think. But uh, because like we're kind of this, this anonymous out there figure, but it's, it's really a third emotional triangle about these other people, these nameless other people. So like I said, triangulation is a coping mechanism uh, to deal with our own anxiety uh, as our as our anxiety arises with our own, our, own, our own relationship, so we seek outside support. So like I said, we're anxious about our boss, so we seek a co-worker support, um, when we recruit a co-worker to share the anxiety. But the thing is, the more we understand triangulating, triangulating, the more we see it everywhere, even within our own society. Um, you know, for, to, to lead some... Some heavier examples, to be honest, like uh, our nation has a long, dark history with prejudice. So rather than dealing with that discomfort, we triangulate, culturally, we triangulate other groups and, and accuse them of sowing discord when really we're the one uncomfortable with our relationship with prejudice. Another example is, you know, speaking of present time, uh, we have, as a nation, have not figured out how to deal equitably and fairly with immigration. So what do we do is we triangulate and shift the burden onto migrant children to blame them. See, again, the relationship is between us and immigration, and we triangulate migrant children and foist the blame onto them and say they're the problem. And even another example, just this past week, uh, the city of Centennial uh, passed a camping a ban so again, the, the, the challenge is the, the, the relationship between the city of Centennial and homelessness. And rather than deal with that relationship, they triangulate and pass this camping ban that doesn't solve the problem, but shifts the burden of responsibility onto something else. So hopefully that makes sense. But this is the thing about triangulating is so often, rather than dealing with our own anxiety, rather than dealing with... Uh, our own part in the relationship, we shift the burden, shift the anxiety onto someone else, and often that someone else is uh, a vulnerable or, uh, yeah, a vulnerable third party, someone who doesn't have quite the power or uh, privilege that we do. So hopefully it's obvious that these are not the best way, the healthiest ways to deal with anxiety and stress. But despite this endless drama, this endless soap opera that we so often live into, we don't know how to do things differently. I mean, because, I mean, in the short term, in the short term, it feels better. Like, we've just pushed off some anxiety onto something else. But in the long run, what we've done is we've created just more and more complexity and triangles that makes just life complicated and crazy and ridiculous. 
Because if we, even if we think about uh, Karina and I's early relationship, like I had this triangle that I created with uh, Karina and I and Blake, and then she had her roommates and her friends that were getting into triangles, you know, between her and I and her roommate and her friends. So you have these just interlocking triangles that forever seemingly complex and complicate things. Uh, one person said <laughs> that it takes two to tango. We've heard that, right? It takes two to tango. Uh, it's been said it takes three to tangle. It takes two to tango. It takes three to tangle. So the question is, how do we untangle? The good news is that Jesus shows us a better way. So today we're starting a new series called Action Required. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking through some of the ways that Jesus asks us to take action in our life and in our world. But before we can talk about how we should act, uh, or for what we should act, I think we should talk about also how we should act. And Jesus shows us just that. So today we're looking at a somewhat infamous passage from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 40. It's the story of Mary and Martha, if you remember that story. And let's, we'll go ahead and read it. I'm going to read it from this, the, the Bible here. We'll have it on the screen here for you as well. But if you'd like to uh, turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 40. Let me see if I can find it here. I always like reading from the physical copy. So, um, Luke 20, 10, 30 through 40. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by many things. So she came and asked him, Lord, do you not care that my sisters left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. Pay attention to those words. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. We're just kind of laughing this morning. Brady Bunch, Martha, Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha, you're worried and distracted by many things. There's need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Now, there's a lot of stuff happening in this text, a lot of stuff uh, culturally uh, that just doesn't relate. We can't understand in our culture to their culture. And I don't want to dive too deep into that this morning or to, to make assumptions because, uh, truthfully, throughout the years, this text has been used in a lot of ways to kind of shame and, and belittle women. And I don't want to do that today. Um, so hopefully I don't do that today. But the basic story is that Jesus came to Martha's house and her sister Mary sat at Jesus' feet which, according to some uh, interpreters, meant that she was a disciple of Jesus. So either way, uh, Martha wasn't happy with being stuck with all the, the housekeeping and meal prep duties, so she went and complained to Jesus. So Martha was essentially trying to triangulate Jesus. She was anxious about what was happening, and rather than talk to Mary about her concerns, she went and went to Jesus to try to get Jesus to fix things. I mean, uh, Katrina, maybe you could tell me better than me, but to me, it's classic triangulation. So here's, I want to uh, not throw, Katrina is actually a resident counselor, is what she does for a living. And I want to say real quick, the difference between triangulation and counseling is that a counselor, when you come to a counselor, they don't take the burden and the responsibility. They push it back onto you and say, this is your problem. I'm going to help you fix it. This is your problem to fix. And this is what Jesus does. 
Jesus does not take the bait from Martha. He doesn't try to fix things for Martha. He tells Martha that she is worried and distracted by many things. I mean, that sounds like anxiety, stress to me. So again, setting aside for right now the, what, what actually was the better part, or why Mary's listening in this instance was theoretically regarded as better, uh, setting that aside for now, I want us to see the way that Jesus avoided being triangulated. He didn't take on Mary's anxiety. Instead, he recognizes her anxiety and gives it back to her and gives her the responsibility for her own decisions. Again, this is what counselors do. They say, this is your decision. Take responsibility for it. You do something about it. I'm not going to fix it for you. And that's what Jesus does. He gives it back to her and says, this is your responsibility. Take action. You fix it. I'll help you way to fix it. Now, this isn't the only time throughout the Gospels we see Jesus acting so wisely. Probably we remember the, the, woman, the story of the woman caught in adultery, or in fairness to her, allegedly caught in adultery. Remember uh, the, the Pharisees, I think it was, or the religious leaders, they, they drag this woman out supposedly and pull, him in front, pull her in front of Jesus and they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. Uh, what should we do? And in that tradition, uh, culturally, they're supposed to stone her, I guess. So again, these religious leaders are trying to triangulate Jesus into a, a problem that was between them and this woman. And what do we remember what Jesus said? He said, he who is without sin can cast the first stone. Boom. Jesus just got himself out of that triangle. Dropped it right out. Another triangle. The temptation of Jesus, right? This is recorded in Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke. We know the story. Jesus goes to the desert. He's tempted by Satan. And what does Satan here try to do? Now, this is kind of a, a different way where Satan is trying to create a triangle. The relationship is between Jesus and God. And Satan tries to, to form a triangle by saying, Hey, are you really following God's way? Are you really doing what God wants you to do? And Jesus, again, just pushes Satan out of that and says, No. Not going to be triangulated. This is what this is interesting. It's again and again what Jesus does is he shows us how to untangle our relationships with one another by a teaching us how to you know not take responsibility for others' problems, but also not let people triangulate or try to create triangles in our own lives. But not just as not only does Jesus show us how to untangle our own relationships with one another. Jesus also shows us how to untangle our relationships or our relationship with God. How to untangle our relationship with God. From the beginning, I believe we were created as humans to be in relationship with God. And we've broken that relationship. That's what historically Christians call sin. That at the end of the day, broken relationship breaking relationship uh, not just with God but also with others when we hurt a relationship we're breaking a relationship in some means I think we can all admit that at times in our lives we've done things that have broken or damaged relationships with, with God with our friends with our loved ones with one another but the thing is historically in in so many different Christian teachings, we've been taught that uh, rather than God just being able to forgive us 
and reconcile the relationship. We've been taught that Jesus had to be triangulated into the relationship. Jesus had to die for our sins. God had to create a triangle. But I don't believe that's how God works. I believe God is always seeking to heal our brokenness and to restore our relationship. God sent Jesus to show us how we can relate to God. Jesus spent his life on earth showing us how we can connect with God. And even when others trying to when even others tried to triangulate and sever the relationship between Jesus and God at the crucifixion, love won. See, for me, it's not the crucifixion of Jesus that I get excited about. It's the resurrection of Jesus that I get excited about because the resurrection shows us that nothing, absolutely nothing, can keep us from God. Not sin, not evil, not death, not triangles. Romans chapter 8, verse 39, we probably recognize this verse. It says, Jesus is about... Says nothing can keep us from God's love revealed in Christ Jesus. Absolutely nothing. Nothing can separate us from God's love. See, in Jesus, God invites you, God reveals to you how to live in authentic relationship with God. God simply invites you as you are to come and follow in Jesus' way and experience the wholeness of God. Jesus did not die in order to make God be able to love you. Jesus was willing to die in order to show you how much God loves you. How there's nothing, nothing God would not do to bring you back into relationship. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you've been told your whole life that you're a dirty, rotten sinner. I mean, churches don't go out and write and say that, right? They don't just go out and say, man, you're a terrible person. But they kind of say it, you know, inherently. Maybe for the longest time you've wondered why God would care about you. I mean, heck, I've wondered that. Maybe you've wanted to be in deep relationship with God, but feel like God keeps keeping you at arm's length because of your sin, because of your mistakes, because of your problems. But the truth is, God created you for a relationship and to be in deep relationship with God. And God sent Jesus to reveal God's love for you, for me, for the whole world, so that we might all be restored to God. Because we were created to live in right relationship with God and Jesus reveals to us, Jesus shows us how to live in right relationship with God. And here's the kicker. Jesus shows us how to live in right relationship with God, not just so we can live in right relationship with God, so we can also live in right relationship with one another. This is the thing. When we learn to live in right relationship with God, we can learn to live in right relationship with one another. Because we begin to see the ways that our actions, our attitudes are com contributing to the brokenness in our personal relationships. And we can begin to seek amends to fix 
and restore those relationships. And the more we begin to see our, the ways our own actions are contributing to the brokenness in our nation, in our world, and we begin to seek making amends in those relationships, making amends of our own brokenness in those relationships. And the thing is, nothing will change ever, overnight. If I can say that, it's not too much of a bummer. I think that's one of the things that gets us down in life is we want, we want things to happen overnight. We want change to happen overnight. You know, our world, our lives, our relationships, they're pretty tangled. They're pretty messy at times. We can't fix those things overnight. We can't untangle all that tangledness immediately. But this is, this is not how God works, though. Uh, I'm reminded, perhaps you remember hearing the story, when Jesus, uh, in the Gospels, he compares God's kingdom to a mustard seed. Do you remember a mustard seed? A mustard seed, uh, if, if I understand correctly, it was like a tiny little, tiny little seed, and it grew, uh, some people compared it almost to like a weed. Grew into like this big bush, but the thing about a mustard seed or mustard seed plant is basically impossible to stop. It just grew and grew, and you could never. Uh, it's kind of like what's those little flower weeds, the white flower things in my backyard that are just impossible to stop. Like you can't get rid of them. Like this is the thing about God's kingdom, about God's ways. Like it starts little, it starts small, but it begins to spread, it begins to grow. Begins to take root and infest, if I can say it, infest in our lives, in our relationships, in our world. Even though we're just individual people, even though we're just a small church, by modeling God's ways in our lives, in the ways we interact with others, in the way we interact in our world, that seed begins to spread and to take root. To make an impact. So we demonstrate the way to live in right relationship with one another and with God. We begin to live out within ourselves and within our relationship with God, how God created us to be in right relationship. And again, in following the way of Jesus. We see not just how to live in right relationship with God, but also how to live in right relationship with one another. And that changes. That can change everything. Hey, thanks for tuning in with us this week. You can check back for new messages each Tuesday. If you're in the Denver area, come see us this Sunday. You can find out more about our service times as well as the mission and vision of M.G. Thornton at mgthornton.org. That's M-G-T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N. See you next week.